Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in to Deep Dive, the all music books podcast where we talk to authors of music books, bios, history, and criticism. I'm your host, Steve J. Our guest today is Evelyn McDonald, who edited the book Women Who Rock, Bessie to Beyonce, Girl Groups to Riot Girl. Welcome, Evelyn. Thank you. So you recently edited this big, beautiful book, Women Who Rock. Can you tell me how this project came about? It was a collaboration between myself and the publisher, uh, which is Black Dog and Leventhal. Actually, they're, they're book packagers, and there was an editor there um, named Becky Coe, who was basically realizing that there hadn't been any comprehensive histories of women in popular music that had come out for a couple decades. You know, there was a surge of interest in titles about inspiring feminists for, you know, all age groups from like literally like preschool up into, you know, adult. And the last sort of book of its kind had come out in the mid 90s, which was the Rolling Stone history of uh, women who rock called Trouble Girls, right? Mm -hmm. Which I was actually a contributor for. Together, we, we saw this, this gap and this need. Um, you know, that book was so out of date. And, and there's clearly, you know, just as in the 90s when Trouble Girls came out, it was a kind of good time for female performers. In the last few years, there's also been a real ascendancy of some powerful female artists. So we wanted to capture that and connect the lineage to those women that had come before, not just 20 years before, but 40 and 60 and 80 years before. We wanted it to be multi-voiced. You know, there were some books that came out that were, you know, single authors that were more like encyclopedic histories of women in music. We wanted to do something that maybe represented a sort of variety of voices and points of view. So we conceived of it as an anthology or a collection of different writers. It kind of exploded from there. Originally, there were supposed to be like eight writers. (laughs) There's, I think, 33. (laughs) And we also, you know, knew from the beginning that we wanted the writers to all be women because, you know, the whole idea was celebrating women's voices, giving a platform for women's voices, acknowledging that sometimes these voices are underheard, underamplified, and that we wanted to help them reach their audience. And you mentioned it is still encyclopedic, but it does have that mix of perspective and and female perspective. And it's just a a fascinating mix. And you penned the introduction, which is excellent. It has a ton of information and provides a great overview. And I wanted to start there because one of the things you did was to determine, you know, who might be subject in the book. You and your collaborators broke down the book's title by the singular words. And I wondered if we could go through that to examine that process. So it's women who rock. So women, that would be the most straightforward one. Right. Well, sort of. Although, you know, in in these days of, of, you know, really deconstructing that concept of the binary, actually, I think in some ways it's been the most problematic one. We didn't want to say that gender is a genre. We didn't want to say that somehow all women create the same kind of music or are alike or that that should be a defining characteristic of music. You know, there's a lot of history of gender bending in popular music coming from all scales of gender. If we think of gender as a continuum rather than a duality, in some ways wish that we had pushed the envelope on that a little bit more. And there's certainly many, many women who are not what we would call feminine role models. 
I mean, well, they, you know, they didn't even have concepts like genderqueer. I mean, I think Sister Rosetta Tharp or Big Mama Thornton might have been considered genderqueer before those were terms. Right. So I think it was interesting to connect that lineage, but maybe we could have even taken that further. You know, that said, I think there's a uh, real importance to being women, and I love women, and I don't want women to get forgotten in this era when we're redefining gender and trying to show that struggles of disparate people are connected. So the second one is who, which I thought five minutes ago would perhaps be the most abstract one. Right. How did you define who in, in terms of, of selection? How did you, you know, emphasize that? I think that it, that was about the identification. Going back to that concept that we didn't want this to be like an encyclopedia, that we wanted this to be a book in which you really identified with the subjects as the writer wrote about them. And so these are essays. They're not Wikipedia entries, right? They're not just a collection of facts. These are personal, sometimes political or cultural or artistic evaluations of why each of these artists matters to the particular writer. And the last one is rock. And this is an interesting one because you make the point that the word was used as a verb and not a noun. Can you explain that distinction? You know, rock has become a problematic term in a lot of ways. And a lot of people think rock and they think guitar-based music. They think it has to have a certain kind of, you know, 4-4 beat, that it's maybe, you know, white music. We have hip-hop, we have pop music, we have R&B, folk, country, soul. These are all labels, right, for, for music. These are all different genres. It's not limited to rock as a genre. The rock concept is about the notion that these are women who had, had or are having an impact, who are changing the culture, who are, you know, rocking the boat. <laughs> so we really wanted that sense of it being an active verb, not a static noun. And certainly not a uh, tired classic style of music. So. Yeah. There's a hundred plus entries in the book. Was there an original list that got called or what was the process like? Was it democratic? It was uh, mostly democratic, but there were there was an executive branch of government that made mm-hmm. the final decisions. There was no judicial division <laughs> to adjudicate, um, basically. I guess, I guess maybe the publisher was the uh, Supreme Court. <laughs> I came up with a list of probably 150 women that I thought could be in the book. In conjunction with the editor, I showed her the list and we, you know, bounced some names back and forth, mostly added people to it. And then I canvassed about 15 women writers that I know or that I, whose work I knew and that I hoped might contribute to the book. And I told them about the project and asked them if they'd be interested in being one of the contributors and to send me a list of 10 women that they thought should be in the book that they would like to write about. I did not share my list with them. The whole point of this book was that it was not a single voice. So I didn't want this just to be about my taste. So they got back to me, or most of them got back to me, and sent me their list. And some of them, you know, wanted to write about all 10, and some of them just wanted to write about five or two, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Different people had different amounts of time. And, you know, a lot of people in their lists were on our existing list, and some weren't. I think the ultimate list grew to about 180, Mm -hmm. maybe 200, which we knew was, was way too many. Again, like, to keep the book interesting, and affordable. <laughs> we, you know, we had to limit the number of artists we could cover. We were really trying to keep it below 100. We didn't quite make that. Right, right. 
so, but we didn't want it to just be 200 short entries that nobody would really want to read. We wanted this to be something that you would like read an essay and go, oh my God, I never thought of Joni Mitchell in that way. And now I have to go re-listen to her albums all over again. I had a spreadsheet of all the artists who were nominated and how many times they were voted for. So if an artist was voted on by at least like two people, she was pretty much in the book. Nobody voted for an artist. There were a couple people that I was the only person who had nominated them, um, but I felt it was really important to include them in the book. And I ended up finding writers for those subjects, and those tended to be more contemporary artists. And then otherwise, if only one person had voted for someone, they probably didn't make the final cut. Well, it's an amazing list of musicians and an equally amazing list of contributors. Did you ever have to jump in? Did, did two writers ever want to cover the same artist, and how did that get handled? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Beyonce, which is not that surprising, um, but then Betty Davis was the second. I guess it also maybe says something about the women that I canvassed, that they both chose these very powerful African-American women who, you know, are also somewhat known for their romantic connections, but have a, I think, a very self-determined sexuality Yeah, so seven people wanted to write about Betty and Beyonce, and I just had to choose who I thought would do the best job. Wow, that sounds like fun, I gotta say. So each profile is roughly the same length, and I'm going to assume that was intentional. You had mentioned, you know, keeping the size, but did you issue any other guidelines to the authors, or were they just, here's the name and go? Um, Yeah, we did. I mean, we had instructions for them, or I had instructions for them. Most of the essays are around 1,000 words. There's a few that went almost up to 2,000 for artists that we just felt had really significant and long careers that it was just hard to encapsulate in a thousand words to do them justice, like Madonna and Joni Mitchell. We did tell people that even though it's not an encyclopedia, you know, you do need to offer the basic biographical historical information. Mm-hmm. If you picked up this book and you had no idea who, you know, Poison Ivy Rorschach was, that you would immediately find out that she'd been the guitarist for The Cramps, right? And, you know, we, we just wanted people to write from a space of their personal interest in the artist without making it about themselves. That said, we wanted there to be that strong point of view. Well, mission accomplished. I mean, each one is a really fascinating read. And like you said, if you don't know the artist and you're using this book as maybe a guidebook, you're going to get what you need to know, but then you're going to get a very personal take, which may or may not influence you to investigate it further. And that that comes across very clearly. Good. The essays are presented roughly chronologically, and then they're divided, again, roughly era, styles, attitude. I'm not sure what the best word is. But there's a piece about the upcoming group of women to follow. Are those pieces written by you? Yeah, yeah. So here's how the organization of the book was determined. It was when they had their first moment of impact. That's the order in which they're arranged. So it is chronological, not by the age of the artist, but by when their, their music first hit. So and then the little interstitial chapters that are on pink paper, um, which are written by me. If you think of the whole thing as being like a timeline, time stamps to say this is what was going on at this time to sort of give us a chance to contextualize what was happening in the 80s or at, you know, the end of the 90s. Because it's chronological, not every artist that follows those timestamps necessarily fits in it, right? Mm -hmm. But those are sort of like where the key takeaways of that era. Does that make sense? 
Absolutely. When you said continuum, that was the first word that got into my head. I thought they did a great job of presenting and then continuing the connection throughout the book. The style of writing as well as as the perspective was, you know, when I came to one of those, I was pretty psyched, you know, because then I get a sense of what was coming. The first Baker's Dozen, I guess, um, which are the foundational or bedrock artists, and they represent jazz, country, blues, folk, soul, funk, salsa. And that's an amazing batch. And out of these... Celia Cruz, and I found that to be a really interesting choice. I was personally just peripherally aware of her, but I got hooked on the very first paragraph or an early paragraph that said, celebrating the sweetness rather than the bitterness of her life was the greatest calling. Her story is amazing. Right. You know, I lived in New York City. I lived in Miami. Now I live in Los Angeles. So I've always had a great awareness of um, Latin music, and I've always really loved it. And I feel like that is a really important part of American music history that often gets ignored. Mm-hmm. So it was important for me to include artists like Celia Cruz or Selena, Ana Tiju, Chilean artists that around now, rap and rock artists. I really wanted those artists to be included because, I mean, you know, the Bo Diddley beat is a Latin beat, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's at the heart mm-hmm. of, of rock and roll. And I mean, Celia Cruz was just an incredible performer. And, you know, to a lot of Americans, she's as big as Janis Joplin ever was or, you know, or Madonna is. And I should mention to our listeners that your book, in most cases, many cases anyway, includes a playlist and it's usually compiled by the author. And those are great throughout. But, you know, with an artist like Celia Cruz, you know, her career spanned five decades. I knew who she was. I knew a few of the songs, you know, kind of peripherally, as I said. But it, it was really cool to go and, and kind of investigate, especially over the course of 50 years. Yeah, I think the playlists were a great idea. I highly recommend queuing up the playlist as you read each chapter mm-hmm. um, or to listen to, you know, it afterwards or as a song is mentioned to play it. I think it really helps the book come alive. And yes, the writers chose the playlist for their authors. Sometimes we tweaked a couple of the playlists. The most notable exception is the playlist for June Millington was actually chosen by June herself. So. Oh, wow. We're speaking with Evelyn McDonald, who's the editor of a book called Women Who Rock, Bessie to Beyonce, Girl Groups to Riot Girl. The other continuum in the book, of course, we mentioned, and and I'd like to just go through them, and uh, hopefully it whets the appetite of our listeners to go and pick up this book and explore it themselves. There's a second group is entitled Dancing in the Streets, and that traces a timeline from doo-wop and vocal groups to powerhouse front women. You have Aretha, Janice, Grace Slick, Mavis, Staples, who personify the sexual revolution. What's the connection between these artists? Well, of course, this is, you know, this is the section of the book that's about one of the greatest periods in recent music history, which is, you know, the mid to late 60s. You know, rock and roll is really starting to play a transformational role in society. It's the soundtrack for the civil rights movement becoming the soundtrack for the women's movement, soundtrack for the anti-war movement. And these are the artists who really shaped that and led that. Sometimes the women of this era get short shrift, get overshadowed by, you know, Dylan and the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. Dylan and the Beatles and the Rolling Stones would have been nothing without the girl groups, without Darling Love and Ronnie Spector and the Supremes. Marianne Faithful uh, wrote uh, one of the Rolling Stones' greatest songs, yeah. Sister Morphine. You know, obviously Janis Joplin, um, Mavis Staples, you know, a woman who's sort of been getting her due again in more recent years. These were women who really combined great songwriting with messages that were changing society. Sometimes these 
little interstitial chapters like Dancing in the Streets. I tried to bring into them the artists that didn't get full mm. essays, like Martha Risa Vandellas. Well, it's funny because Cher made the cut of this group, and I would bet a lot of people don't remember just how big and, and influential she was at that time. I, I know, and you know, as someone who's not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which mm. is insane, you know, she had the Sonny and Cher show. It was a hugely popular weekly variety show. I watched it when I was a kid growing up. They had hit records, and I mean, Cher, like Dolly Parton, who's also in this chapter, are also these artists who've just had such incredibly long, prolific careers, and not just, you know, in music, but in film, on the stage, the opposite of one-hit wonders, right? Right, right. The next group of, of what you call interstitials, I like that, is named after a masterpiece by one of the included artists, and that would be Joni Mitchell and the Ladies of Laurel Canyon. And that name definitely invokes the hippie ethos and bohemian lifestyle. But more interestingly, that piece points out it's a period where the rise of the individual rock star eclipses girl groups and garage bands. Right. So this is, you know, we're sort of segueing into the early 70s singer-songwriter era, which is actually an era in which I think women's contributions maybe have been more noted and mm. recognized. And, you know, obviously with Joni Mitchell, but also Linda Ronstadt and Carol King, Emmylou Harris, these were women who had tremendous economic success. I mean, Carol King's Tapestry was for decades the best-selling album of all time. Right. So, yeah, I mean, you know, we go from maybe the girl power of the girl groups to the I am women roar of the single artist, Helen Reddy and another artist. You know, I always think like, we need to do a volume two. Like these are all the women who I wish I'd been able to get in. Well, it's funny because the Laurel Canyon, I know that there was a couple of documentaries and I think there's another one in the works for epics that I read about recently. And you know, that period is really being reexamined and reappreciated to a lot of the, the women in that era. The GTOs, that's a crazy record and a crazy error backstory, I think. Yeah, yeah. The GTOs are probably worthy of a book themselves. I mean, Pamela DeBar, who is one of the main members of the GTOs, you know, did write the seminal rock bio, uh, I'm with the band. They were the muses that also became the musicians with the GTOs. Yeah, I forget which one it is, but on Frank Zappa's Hot Rats, that's one of them coming out of the pool and that kind of electric pink thing. And they just have such a pervasive backstory, really. And then there's this one document of them, which is fascinating. Yeah, I think um, telling all of their stories and what happened to them, I mean, actually a lot of them died. As yeah. If you look at the chapter, it talks about how many of them are no longer alive. Pamela's still around and teaching people to write. Yeah, Miss Mercy, I know, is still out there. I see some posts from yep. her in places. So by the mid-70s, Summer of Love had turned into, quote, the winter of our discontent. And that begins the next entry, Punk is My Gender, which is a great opening line. Thank you. Yeah, I stole that line from a panel. Uh, one, of the, one of the panelists said that, and I just thought that was such a great line because that was one of the things about punk music because it emphasized like self-expression over like instrumental proficiency. It was a place that women felt like they could be creative and not be judged in the same ways. And, you know, even if they, you know, hadn't been given the same guitar lessons from age eight on that they could make great music. So many of the definitive artists of that era were women. Obviously, Patti Smith, like such a game changer for both women and for men. Absolutely. Jim Jett, Susie Sue, Debbie Harry, 
you know, and I think I think there's also something really fundamental about punk rock that it disrupted beauty standards and it right. disrupted the concept of femininity. And so women could be, you know, you could be like this super tomboy icon like Joan Jett. Right. I mean, Joan Jett struggled to be recognized in the runaways in the late 70s. And then punk came around and all of a sudden people got Joan. And with so many women front and center, do you think that this had an effect on attitudes for like queers and androgyny and what you call punk outlawry? Absolutely. I mean, I think that punk was was all about a kind of gender outlawry. And, you know, and that extended to men, too. I mean, people like Iggy Pop, I Want to Be Your Dog. It was about like changing gender roles, you know, Lou Reed, Transformer. I think it was all about like disrupting the norm. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Now, punk purist, and that might be a contradiction of terms, but I think heart is also listed in this uh, section. What's the argument for them in this category? That's really be just because, as I said, ultimately the book is organized chronologically. Right. Okay. okay. Although I will say, you know, they were certainly a hard rocking band, Barracuda. I mean, I to call it more of a hard rock or metal song than punk, but still, I think like it could be a punk song. Well, having a, a woman guitar player is pretty punk too. So. Right. Such a rarity. Very rare still, I guess. Uh, girls Just Want to Have Fun is a natural to follow, and MTV and videos would play a huge part in this era, and it would help break traditional color lines as well. Yeah, although, you know, I think that MTV, you know, gave with one hand and took with the other. Actually, MTV was very slow to play black artists for a while. Right. And it really wasn't until, you know, Michael Jackson's thriller made it impossible for them to not play videos by black artists that they finally figured it out. I, you know, and I think that women's, a lot of women's careers were helped by MTV. Again, you know, Joan Jett couldn't get the time of day of America's attention in The Runaways and then MTV comes along, and she has, you know, one of the greatest rockets of all time, multiple rockets, right? right. Part because the audience for MTV was 24 hours, 
And during the day, a lot of women were, you know, still, and to to this day, a lot of women were home and watching, and they they wanted to see themselves on the TV. Rock radio had become really formatted for a male audience. It was trying to sell commercials for men. It did not give women artists a lot of airplay. So MTV did break that mold. And tellingly, in this in this section, you have Laurie Anderson and Diamanda Gallas who pushed the envelope, but clearly won things, quote, in their own terms, as the intro suggested this era. It's, it's a punk rock kind of a mindset, but it happens in this MTV era, which is fascinating. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, and it's interesting that Laurie Anderson and Diamanda Gallas are right next to each other in the book. They were coming out of the sort of loosening of conventions that punk allowed and fostered. They were coming out of experimental music scenes and environments. You know, after punk came No Wave and New Wave, which were also places for creative play and experimentation um, that Marianne Anderson and Steve Endeglossic were really influenced by. You know, I'm sure they were helped by the fact that women artists were just getting more appreciation, largely because of MTV. Also because, you know, the feminist movement had gone more mainstream. And women were making music that was really speaking to other women. Right. You know, the Go-Go's are the first uh, act in the Girls Just Want to Have Fun section. And, you know, they were the first act to have a number one album in which they, you know, wrote or co-wrote all of the songs and played all the instruments. Yeah, and that record was massive in terms of sales as well as the presence on MTV and uh, and changing that whole approach. They're also not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, yeah. which is, you know, I did not write this book to point out the inequities of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, but it has very effectively done so. Yeah, I, I've sort of stopped caring about, I mean, I hate to say that, but it's just so all over the place and there's people who shouldn't be in there that, and people who aren't. And it's just, it's yeah. every time I, I see the nominees, I just shake my head for the most part. But what's interesting, I think, uh, about your format, though, is if you're looking at the MTV and, and the girls want to have fun thing, and then you come across a Laurie Anderson or a Diamanda Gallas and you don't know them, I think it'd be a really interesting trip to take and you know, listen to the playlist. And, and, you know, those are quite different from some of the other groups there, but they, I mean, they still belong in that group, but just musically, philosophically, presentation-wise, they're very, very different. Yeah, I think it's important to realize that, you know, Laurie Anderson was releasing Big Science at the same time the Go-Go's were releasing, you know, Beauty and the Beat. That was an interesting time. (laughs) I remember it quite well. I mean, it was another actually good time for women in music. I mean, I wish all we could say that all times were good times for women in music, but I would say that that dawn of MTV, early to mid-80s, Cindy Lauper and Madonna and Whitney Houston and Sinead O'Connor. Right. And your book does make the point that it goes back very deep. The sister Rosetta Tharp and, and those people, as you say, this grew and girl power is next. And, that you know, it's a virtual who's who of players there. And, and many of them, Tori Amos and Fiona Appler, now back in recent news. And do you think this group has a unique longevity? And if so, why do you think that might be? Yeah, isn't it amazing? Well, it's just great to think of women artists being able to have long careers and being appreciated and being taken seriously in the third or fourth decades of their careers. And for us to care what women in their 40s and 50s and 60s are singing about, that's something that really hasn't happened. Um, That's extremely rare. So I'm so happy that Fiona Apple's album, you know, was probably the most important album to come out of the, you know, during the pandemic, right? And, you know, and even, you know, Kathleen Hanna and Bikini Kill, you know, they also reunited last year, right? Well, they were supposed to be touring now, but I guess their tour is postponed. That said, these artists did kind of 
not get paid attention to for a couple decades after their early to mid-90s launch. When women artists can sustain long-term careers in the way that male artists can, I'll feel like we're achieving gender equity. Well, isn't Alanis Morissette have something based on her song on, on Broadway now too, right? Yeah, off the whole album. Right, right. I mean, it's yeah. not now during the pandemic. This time period, uh, it's it's very interesting to see how that group just continues to kind of grow. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the girls who grew up in that music are now adults and mothers, and um, I think they're wanting to pass that music on. Now, the next group is super interesting. It's called Fly Girls, and it features Missy Elliott. Erica Badu and Beyonce, but alongside them are also included the Dixie Chicks, Nico Case, and Amy Winehouse. All fly, all super soulful, but that's a very diverse group. What ties these women together? Every era has different genres of artists that have ascendancy. This is pretty much the 2000s, right? That this chapter covers like the late 90s through the mid-2000s. So this is sort of after that 90s explosion of women artists, and these are uh, women who are keeping the flame going in different ways. This is when Beyonce first emerges with Destiny's Child. Um, There's the Dixie Chicks. So I think that these are artists who maybe didn't have the benefit of a scene or a wave or a movement to lift them up, but just did it on their own. And through their artistry. Well, you know, you're talking about some huge artists, and the book closes with a seat at the table. You know, there's M.I.A. and Rihanna, Taylor Swift, Adele, Gaga, Nicki Minaj. This is just a huge part of radio and pop music today. So why just a seat at the table? I mean, they should own the corporation, right? So that's from, you know, Solange's seminal album, which I think really did define like the last five to ten years. Again, I think, you know, we're at a moment where some incredible women have risen to the absolute top of the music charts and have just dominated the industry. I mean, Adele, Taylor Swift, Beyonce still, Lady Gaga, right? Rihanna. These are like superstar icons who I think are also really compelling artists. You know, one of the points of this book was not just to talk about the artists that maybe everybody's heard of, but also artists that people haven't heard of and should. Right. Such as I mentioned earlier, Anna Tichu, the Chilean performer, Santa Gold. I saw her perform a couple of years ago at a festival that Chanel Monet was at, uh, Lizzo. It wasn't a festival for women artists, but it was a festival that nicely had a lot of women artists on the bill. And Santa Gold just blew everybody away. One of those incredible shows. I've ever seen. I don't even really know how to explain or, <laughs> explain or describe her music. Um, she's so singular. And if you haven't listened to her, I would highly recommend it. So, and I'm really happy that we chose to end the book with Brittany Howard, right. you know, because we did that. I mean, this book went to press three years now before, you know, her solo rise. So we were just going off of the strength of Alabama Shakes and right. some of her collaborations. So. Well, I'm glad we could go through the topics, and I hope people will pick it up because there's, you know, this is a really 10,000-foot overview, and there's amazing essays, as you call them, about so many artists that fill this bill. And, you know, I wanted to look at it from that perspective so that people would say, I should read this and, you know, discover some new music or go back and listen to old music. You know, another very unique aspect of this book is that rather than photographs, you had illustrations done of each artist by a group of women's artists. Whose idea was this? And how did you find and approach these uh, artists? Well, actually, the, the publisher suggested this. And, and um, as I said, they're, uh, Black Dog and Leventhal um, started as book packagers. They do a lot of, you know, very graphically driven books. Like, that's what their strength is. Yeah. I knew that that was something they could do well. 
And I thought that was just a really great idea. You know, you have a lot of photos to choose from when you're talking about Grace Jones or Beyonce, but when you're talking about Sisters at a Tharp or Big Mom Thornton, you know, you're going to be using images that people have already seen a lot. And the sense that the essays are interpretations of who these musicians are, so are the illustrations, right? They're each each illustrator's version of of their subject. Um, I like to call them, you know, portraits in words and words and portraits and, and ink and paint and the different formats that the illustrators use. Uh, we had a handful of illustrators who did the illustrations. The publisher and I worked together to choose those illustrators. You know, I am not a book packager. I'm, I'm a writing person. I'm not a visual person. So I definitely leaned heavily on the publisher to think about which artist would, the art would go well together, but yet each be distinctive. It's beautiful. And one of the best hidden treasures is Grace Slick's portrait. How did that come about? Uh, yeah, Grace Slick is a, is a self-portrait. I don't know. I, I just knew that she was a painter, and I thought it would be a really cool idea. And I contacted her manager. I had worked with them on something else, and he said, sure. The only problem was that they didn't have the original of that painting, and they just had like a small digital version of it, so we couldn't make it as big as we wanted to make it. <laughs> because we had technical issues. Yeah, the other um, illustration that's a singular illustration is the Chrissy Hind painting is by Wendy Case, who also wrote the essay on Chrissy Hind. And I love that painting, and I'm so mad at myself that I didn't buy it from her. Somebody else bought it from her. We're speaking with Evelyn McDonald, who is the editor of Women Who Rock, Bessie to Beyonce, Girl Groups to Riot Girl. That's not the only book you've wrote. I know that, that you must be a rocker from a long time ago. You've written a couple of really cool books, or they sound really cool. I haven't read them yet, but there's Queens of Noise, which is the real story of the runaways. And Yes, that was my book, my previous book to this one. Yeah, that was a really fascinating and hard book to write because their story is mm. very dark in a lot of ways. I had to navigate some strong personalities and um, band dynamics uh, in reporting that. You know, their story is just so emblematic of the way women artists get objectified and poorly treated and mismanaged and misunderstood and are sometimes ahead of their time. A couple of years after the Runaways breakup, you know, Joan Jett and Lita Ford emerge on their own as important solo artists. I mean, if you go back and listen to the Runaways albums, they are just amazing songs. And they dominated Cream Magazine for a little period there when I was reading that. So I was aware of them very young. Another one is Rock She Wrote, which is similar to Women Who Rock, but you celebrate the work of women who write about music and perform it. That's pretty fascinating. Yeah, that was my first book deal, and it was a collaboration with Ann Powers in the mid-90s. Basically, we had found each other, and we were both women rock critics, and there weren't a lot of us. I was hired to be her editor in San Francisco, um, and I was working on a story about, like, where are all the women rock critics at? And I interviewed her for it, and, you know, we became really close friends and collaborators, and she actually said we should do a collection of all the women that have written about music, of all these lost essays from, you know, the first rock critic for The New Yorker was a woman, Ellen Willis. Nobody knew that at that time. Now, you know, subsequently there had been... You know, there's a collection of her writing that came out several years ago after she died. So, and and then we also included what were then contemporary pieces in the mid-90s. Similar to Women Who Rock in that they're both collections of writing by women. Rock, she wrote, was previously published pieces. And finally, 
Mama Rama, a memoir of sex, kids, and rock and roll, which is your own story in the transition from a riot girl to a rebel mom. <laughs> yeah, so this was a book I wrote about a decade ago, more, more than that. <laughs> what I didn't know was going to happen was that there was going to be a, a sort of a pouring of books by mothers, alt-mother books, <laughs> memoirs, as they called them, uh, that sort of happened at the same time. I think just because there was a generation of us women who were raised as feminists and were raised to want to have our own careers and our own places in the world that weren't just defined by our relationship to others. But then we also wanted to be mothers and we were starting to be parents and we're finding that to be a confusing time. Like we didn't have a lot of role models. And so I think we were all just trying to like document our experiences and share with each other. Excellent. Well, Evelyn McDonald, your book, Women Who Rock, Bessie to Beyonce, Girl Groups to Riot Girl, truly does rock. I'd recommend it to anybody out there. It's a fun read because you can kind of pick it up and put it down. You can go back, skip around, find some playlists and learn a lot. So thanks for joining us today, Evelyn. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. If you'd like to find out more about her book, please visit allmusicbooks.com. You can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our deep dive episodes there. I'd like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. Finally, a big shout out to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout this podcast. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all the major streaming services. Please support your local and independent musicians and writers. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning into Deep Dive, an all-music books podcast. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.